0: Simon.
1: Good evening everyone and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a riveting and timely show this evening. Air crash investigator Greg Feith is here and we are going to talk about what's been happening over the past year in the news. So many things having to do with aviation and safety, both commercial and general aviation and so we're very, very excited to get to that. The other thing that I'm very excited about is that we are in the last couple of days of Social Flight's Fly to Win Challenge. All you need to do is get uh, your mobile device, Apple or Android device, and get the Social Flight mobile app. It's completely free. Check in at your local airport, and you are entered into wind. Check in at more airports, get out there and fly, and you'll get additional points to be on our leaderboard and have a chance to win this prize, period's prize, which is a Lightspeed Delta Zulu headset. Uh, Very, very cool. And then, of course, we'll roll over and we'll keep giving away more prizes. We are here to support General Aviation, and uh, I'm just excited to be part of that, along with all of you. Uh, In addition, Social Flight's FAA learning system is available. Just go to socialflight.com. You can watch programs, get wings credits. If you are a mechanic, you can participate in the AMT, Aviation Maintenance Technician Awards program. And additionally, uh, in IA renewal credits from the comfort of your own home on your timetable, and uh, all of that is in partnership with the FAA. Tonight's broadcast is brought to you by UAvionics, and they are a strong supporter of social flight. We're grateful to that. We've got their AV30, their AV20, Sky Beacon, Tail Beacon, Tail Beacon X, Sky Sensor, so many things, all having to do with safety. And so uh, be sure to uh, check them out. Uh, All their products are incredibly, uh, they're just wonderful to use. They've got great human factors and the price points are just wonderful, especially in a world where prices seem to keep going up all the time on all sorts of products. Now, On to tonight's guest. Greg Feith is a former uh, safety air, excuse me, senior air safety investigator with the National Transportation Safety Board. Among many of his accomplishments, he's known for leading the investigation team that climbed Bolivia's Mount Illimani to an elevation of over 21,000 feet to conduct the crash investigation of the Eastern Airlines Flight 980, which was a Boeing 727. That said, Greg is a familiar face to most folks because he is TV news's, the whole industry's go to aviation accidents man. He's the guy who they go to when they want to know how something happened or why something happened. He's appeared on several television series and even played the role of a co pilot on the ill fated DC 9 in the made for TV movie Crash the mystery of Flight 1501. Please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Greg Fife. I'm going to bring Greg on the line now.
0: Hey, how are you doing, hey. Greg? Good, how are you? Thanks for that great introduction. I'm not sure that people want to know about the fact that I played an ill-fated co-pilot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the safety guy. I'm not supposed to die in an airplane crash.
1: <laughs> and that's a, that's an interesting point. Look, it was so wonderful seeing you a couple weeks ago out uh, at the uh, uh, at the Legends event, uh, and you are a legend of aviation, honored out there, uh, uh, along with so many others. And uh, uh, I'm just glad to have you here on the show because this seems, if you, especially if you read the news, this seems to be have been a very, very uh, troublesome past 12 months and it almost seems to be getting worse. Is this real or is this just news reporting? What is happening in aviation?
0: I wish I could say it's uh, fiction. Unfortunately, it's nonfiction. There's been a lot of things going on. And of course, because not only of media scrutiny, but just the interested public, everything that happens gets magnified especially like recently with Boeing. Um, You know, yes, there are loose bolts. Yes, a door came off an airplane. Yes, it could have been more catastrophic. But again, you get into the spotlight like this and all of a sudden now everybody's got an opinion, everybody's gonna chime in, everybody's gonna start nitpicking but boeing isn't the only one that has problems airbus has its own problems Embraer has its own problems cessna has its own problems it's just that because of boeing's past reputation over the last four years with mcas and the 737 max and now these door issues and the bolts and everything else it's just magnified to a level jeff that of course you know everybody's under scrutiny and then all of a sudden it's like, well, what's going on with the FAA? Why isn't the FAA plugged in? Well, we've been through five administrators in the last five years, basically. Um, We now have a brand new administrator who's been thrown into the fire. (laughs) And now the question is, I mean, he's starting to sink before he's able to swim, trying to get caught up with all of this. And again, you know, that looks like inaction. And then of course, Congress the reauthorization still hasn't gone through with the FAA. So there's a lot of things that are compounding and have compounded over the last year, year and a half.
1: Yeah, there is. Uh, it's very interesting to see what's kind of happening uh, with um, uh, with with the way that the news is actually. oops looks like I lost you for a second there. Sorry, uh, my bad. Um, uh, um, I think. Just accept that. You'll come right back Uh, in. I did. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, it's, it's been very interesting to see, uh, the way that the media kind of hops on things. Obviously we had the uh, door plug issue. Uh, I I know you've commented on that from a mechanic standpoint. Uh, I commented in the New York times about it to try to get people to kind of understand the situation. And, uh, but then of course, it just goes from there a few missing bolts on an airbus and and all of a sudden it's uh, it, it's all over CNN so um, everybody it almost they almost try to, to hop on. What do you think
0: about that I think you know unfortunately, as we all know with these 24 hour news cycles um, you know they'll stretch a story you know a one day story into a week or two weeks and while there are issues going on with Boeing and the fact that Boeing came out almost immediately after the event, this latest event with the door plug, and took responsibility, okay, that's great, but what's gonna be done to change it? Because they came out and did the same thing right after the MCAS events. And so people are going, well, what changed? Well, apparently nothing has changed. And management has said that they are gonna do safety stand downs and that kind of stuff. We all know that whether it's a Boeing or any kind of other uh, business, manufacturing business, consulting business, doesn't matter. When management says, we're gonna have a safety standout, we're gonna talk to our employees and we're we're gonna find out what's going on. The problem is the people down on the floor are not gonna confess what's going on down on the floor to the C-suite management. They'd rather talk to people that can understand what's going on on the floor and then relay exactly because they've been there, done that relay to C-suite, hey, this is what needs to be done. Here's what's going on. Here are so, some practical solutions. Just venting to management, we've seen that in the past, not with Boeing, but with other organizations and other issues in aviation, and it things never really get resolved. There's a Band-Aid fix here and there. It makes people feel good or gives that level of confidence, but there really has to be some serious uh, work done where, okay, you've got the information now, now let's come up with a serious solution. Hey, the FAA tried to do that. The NTSB's tried to do that with their round tables. What's changed?
1: (laughs) Well, and a stand down doesn't necessarily change it, right? If if some of it has to do with funding or staffing or issues at the top, um, I mean, do you feel like we're just holding our breath and there's a lot more to come uh, when it comes to the commercial side?
0: I think there's a lot of precursors, Jeff. That's my concern. Um, we've seen a number of events, not only with the manufacturing process, but with air traffic and some of the airlines and, and some of the issues that have taken place, uh, these near ground collisions and, and that kind of thing. These are precursors. and And because of the fact that we have airlines who are trying to ramp up a pilot force and we've got these pilot factories going on, And we're putting out quantity, not quality, as far as pilots getting into the system. I think all of this could be cataclysmic if we're not careful, we don't take a step back and really evaluate what's going on in the industry. We've seen these peaks and valleys. We've seen these pilot issues back in the 80s, 90s. It's very cyclic. Uh, We saw some of that ramp up issue. when when 9-11 happened and everybody was on the ground and they had to ramp up operation. We saw it during the Reagan era when uh, when they uh, fired 5,000 air traffic controllers and they tried to ramp the air traffic controller system up and there were a lot of issues. So these aren't new as far as issues, but I think right now we have a lot of precursors that short of having a catastrophic accident, we have the ability to slow the system down Reevaluate and actually come up with some real-world practical solutions that we that need to be implemented. Yeah, um, let's let's talk about this
1: kind of in in segments. I mean, it seems to me that the theme of what's happening is stressing the system. That th- those are the the three words that have come to mind for me for all of these different segments. Uh, yeah. In manufacturing, we see it as the onset. Uh, through the pandemic, of problems with supply chain, problems with staffing and staffing turnover during supply chain, training, et cetera, that's then followed by massive demand that all of a sudden we have to catch up to. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that what you think is driving what we're seeing on these manufacturing uh, and kind of side of things?
0: I think those are two very good points. The third point I would add to that is talent. Mm. We don't don't have experience. A lot of the experience retired, walked out the door when they were given early outs or given incentive to leave, especially because of COVID. Uh, We saw that with the airlines. I mean, look at look how shorthanded the airlines got when they offered these early outs because they parked all the airplanes during COVID. Well, they didn't expect the ramp up to be as fast as it was. And now all of a sudden they're short of pilots and they're scrambling to put pilots in airplanes to keep the iron moving. Now, yeah. Boeing, Boeing and others, uh, Airbus just got a huge order, so they wanna ramp up production. Well, that's great to ramp up production, but at what cost? Because if you don't have the talent on the floor, you don't have the time to really spend training, as you brought up, training those people. Um, they're trying to accomplish the mission, turn out airplanes at 51 airplanes a month instead of 47 or, or 40 or whatever. So what's gonna suffer? if you don't have the talent. And of course yeah. it gets down to quality.
1: And it's so sad because when you do like have work- workforce reductions, it's always your best, your brightest, your most experienced that walk out the door. And 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 it's it never seems to be one of these situations where someone looks at it and says, yes, but it's not gonna be now. It's gonna be six months. Like you sign this deal, you get this package and it comes with this extra bonus. For you to spend the next six months in training you know in in passing down knowledge or you know or a year whatever it's going to take to protect the interests of the company and their customers
0: meaning the flying public you lose a lot of talent and a lot of knowledge when when the older workforce walks out the door there's got to be a program i, I mean if <laughs> if it was my world and i was able to you know run the manufacturing uh, of an airplane uh, company I would bring back that talent as mentors to other people. I mean, I would be using all of that experience as quality control, as oversight, to ensure that this new workforce or this inexperienced workforce is getting the benefit of all of that corporate knowledge that walked out the door, whether you fly it, fix it, or manage it. Mm -hmm. Um, We have managers in new positions that really don't have a depth of background. They just know what they're supposed to do. Okay, but there's a whole history behind it. I saw it at the NTSB, see it at the FAA. It doesn't matter. The fact is, is yeah. that we don't utilize that talent. Like, I don't believe we utilize that talent as we should. Makes a lot of sense. So
1: now let's talk about the pilot side uh, of this, specifically in that, uh, while we're still focusing on commercial, in that whole commercial chain, because it's another area that there's been a massive stress on the system. You mentioned, uh, of course, that there were, we, you know, we let, the, when the pandemic hit, we let go, early retirement, all sorts of experience, commercial pilots there, uh, uh, many of them up against the, the uh, uh, age limits to begin with. And so now we're trying to backfill as quickly as we can what are you seeing as is the safety problems that are coming from this
0: well there's a number of things one from the general aviation side we have very young instructors who are getting their cfis double I's, meis that kind of stuff with 230 250 two, you know less than 300 hours they haven't really experienced aviation it's more theoretical and book knowledge than it is practical experience And now we're turning them loose into a cockpit, teaching people that don't know how to fly. So now (laughs) they don't know what they don't know. They're teaching them what they don't know because they don't have a full understanding because they don't have a lot of practical experience. And I've heard it a number of times. I'm mentoring a number of students, but I hear other students go, well, what I don't learn in flight school at X, Y and Z flight school, the airlines will teach me. No, they won't. They don't have time. They have an expectation that when you sign on the dotted line and they put you in training, you have a depth of knowledge, you have skills, abilities, and experience. They don't have time to baby you through this whole program. Mm -hmm. I've got friends of mine flying in the airlines right now who call me and go, Greg, I'm flying a Boeing 767, single pilot IFR with a distraction in the right seat. Because Mm -hmm. the depth of knowledge, even though they have been found, quote, qualified, they really don't understand the process of being an airline pilot. Interesting, how much of that do you believe is kind of like
1: hours experience or filling those seats and and how much of it is kind of the soft skills of the maturity that comes and the experience that comes of someone in a different time, let's say that had to, that, that it was a longer path to get to the airline that they, they had a lot more life experience and, and uh, to bring to that situation, and perhaps personality or
0: maturity. You know, you bring up a good point and we could probably talk for three shows on this particular subject. Look, you know, 500 hours or 5,000 hours. 5,000 hours of droning around in circles as a CFI is not experience. I'd rather have a 500-hour pilot who's flying all over the United States, going into different environments, shooting different approaches, doing more things, that's a better depth of experience than just droning around for 5,000 hours to accumulate time so that they meet a qualification. It is mm. all about the quality. And I always preach it, I preach it today, I preach, I've been preaching it forever, and that is, for CFIs out there who have an aspiration to move on to the airlines, this is a perfect time to work on your CRM captain skills because you are the captain in this particular environment, but you also have to have good CRM skills. You have to be a good communicator. You have to be a good mentor. You have to be a good instructor. You have to be a good coach. And now is the time to work on that because you won't have time at the airline. They don't have time. You go through a CRM program, there's expectations that you already come with these with these talents and this experience. You bring up another point and I did a, I did my show, um, my podcast about the fact that I was disappointed that the airlines uh, dropped the college requirement. And I know that people are gonna be all up in arms about the fact you don't need to be a college graduate to be an airline pilot. That's very true, but what college gives you is a level of maturity and accountability because it requires you to be very disciplined to go through. I don't care if you're getting you know an art degree you don't necessarily need to have an aviation degree, but it shows accountability, it shows responsibility, and you mature over that four years. But the bigger point is, okay, you want to be an airline pilot. We all know you can't hold a medical, you can't fly. What's your plan B? Hmm. And, without a, and without a degree, what's your plan B? And if you want to stay in aviation, I mean, yeah, you could probably get a job maybe as a ground handler, a fueler, or that kind of thing, but at least with a college degree, maybe a management degree or a safety degree, it allows you to pursue other opportunities in aviation if you can't sit in the front end of the airplane.
1: Yeah, you know, I I, I find that really interesting. I've heard a lot of discussions on it, and I really do tend to agree with you that, again, it's not about the subject. It's about that concept of four years of training of homework and projects and deadlines and responsibilities. And people can point to it and say there's, you know, partying and everything else, but there's yeah. a certain amount of learning to live in life that, that that may be helpful in what develops the most mature person in the cockpit to be handling hundreds of passengers
0: in the back and the situation responsibility. And, and, and you're absolutely correct. And we see it all the time. And And the concern of course is, How are we good communicators? Because you do have a new generation of pilot who is very well-versed in being able to program the FMS and play video games and do all that stuff. And they're paired with an older, I won't say stoic, but an older, um, more mature pilot, a captain, you know, late 50s, early 60s, who may not be well-skilled, well-versed in the programming of all of that automation. And there has to be, common ground so that they can communicate because if that communication breaks down especially on a dark and stormy night with a sick airplane and you're working as two autonomous individuals instead of as a cohesive group bad things are going to happen we have history to demonstrate that with accidents and serious incidents well what what do you think about
1: the kind of extensions that have happened and that they're still talking about doing more of to the age limit for commercial aviation?
0: I think while we, you know, are looking at better health overall as a society, we're living longer and that kind of thing. And, and we're trying to instill that healthier lifestyle at a younger age, we are we're seeing cancer rates in young people going up. We see other disease and medical issues in young people going up. Whether that's by their own devices with partying and, and alcohol and drug abuse and all that kind of stuff, or at least you know recreational drugs, um, the fact is is that the the age 65 pushing it to 70 years old. I I just went to a birthday party for a friend of mine who just turned a hundred. He is sharp as a tack and he still flies. I mean I'd fly with him tomorrow. I have no problem with him, but he is the exception, not the rule. And of course we're seeing heart disease and heart attacks with pilots that are well younger than retirement age. So it's all about having a very healthy lifestyle if you're going to be in a demanding job like this. And uh, Jeff, you remember years ago, I mean, you know, 20, 30 years ago, they said pilots didn't like to retire at 60 or 62, why? Because once they retired, their average lifespan was like three years after they retired because flying was their whole life. They got bored, you know, retirement killed them. So <laughs> again, there has to be a way for us to capitalize on that experience. If you want to retire at 65, great, but let's, let's take a retired annuitant, bring them back and use all of that experience to mentor the upcoming generation of pilots that are coming through who are gonna be sitting in that seat for 20, 30, even 40 years. That's such a profound concept. I love that. The, the, you know,
1: it it ties directly to what we were talking about when large manufacturing companies and others let go all of this experience without transitioning knowledge. And we need that same thing when we think about extending the age limits for pilots. it's, It's, if all we do, is extend the age limits and just stick another two or three, five years on, then all we've done is band-aid the situation. But if you were to if you were to connect that to a program yep. that really used those extended pilots, extended in age, to transfer that knowledge and experience to your next generation, that would be extraordinarily valuable.
0: Look, look, United Airlines created their Aviate program. Frontier's got their own ab initio program. Other airlines are doing their ab initio program, Delta and everybody else. Great. Then take all those retired pilots and use them as the instructors. Hmm. Give the these students the guidance. Hey, hey, I'm a real world airline pilot. I'm telling you, this is the way it is. It's not pie in the sky. It's not, you know, just a big paycheck. Here's what you must know. Here is what you must work on as far as your skill base. And if you want to aspire to be a captain, this is what you're going to need to do is having that captain authority, the ability to be a good communicator, a good coach, a good mentor, and and really a good instructor because you're going to be instructing a first officer all the way till they move over to the left seat.
1: I love that. I mean, mentorship is is a word that's thrown around in aviation quite a bit, but, but having it ingrained in a training system and in a strategy really seems to make a lot of sense.
0: Why waste that talent? I mean, I mean when I left the NTSB and I still go out and you know, do 60 speeches a year around the world and I do these TV shows and fortunately I get to hang with you my friend on, on your show. It's about giving back because having all this information and having at least a perspective and keeping it to myself doesn't benefit anybody benefits me, but that's not my job because I've been blessed in my career and given the opportunity with the skills, abilities and knowledge and, and all the experience I've gotten, not only from just axe investigation, but just safety and being around other people who have mentored me. It's giving back because it does me no good. And I don't have time to write a book right now because I'm working too much. So, <laughs> I mean, I'd love to write a book or produce a movie or whatever and throw this knowledge out there. I just don't have that time. So if there's ways to give back, which I do, I go to I go to my old alma mater, Embry-Riddle, but I speak at other schools and I do these kinds of presentations where I do the podcast and the YouTube channel, all that kind of stuff. That's my way of giving back so that people are enlightened by the experiences and the knowledge. And, oh, by the way, a reality check. Because chasing the money in aviation right now should not be the prime motive, because Mm -hmm. if it is, get out of aviation, because you're going to hurt yourself or kill yourself, and you're going to compromise my safety, because you're chasing the money, you don't really understand aviation, you just know enough to be in aviation, and it can't be that way. Right.
1: Well, I can tell you that uh, myself and certainly uh, our audience, we are, we are grateful that you're spending the time to help pass some of that information along, that's for sure. Um, let's turn
0: this question a little just bit Let towards- me say one more thing that we talked yeah. about, and it's for, for you know, bringing up uh, the fact that we, when we talk, this doesn't just apply to the front end of the airplane. It, this doesn't apply. These philosophies, these ideas, and this giving back and all of the things that happen in the front of the airplane happen in the maintenance hangar. Maintenance techs are susceptible to distraction, to complacency, to self-induced pressure, to fatigue. Everything that happens in the front end happens in the hangar. And oh, by the way, it'll happen in the office of management. It happens for flight atten- uh, to flight attendants. It doesn't matter. It happens in life. And so yeah, we've yeah. got to take these lessons and incorporate them across the board. We can't just segregate a population in the aviation industry, you're
1: so right, and uh, you know, you know, it is a crisis into itself. We have a crisis in every single area that the system is stressed. The maintenance—anyone who's tried to get themselves scheduled for, you know, an annual inspection with their aircraft, anyone who's had their aircraft down for a while, needed a new engine—it's um, it's tough out there right now. And when when that situation occurs and you're dealing with that, you fall back on the regulations to say, are all the checks and balances in place and to ensure that we have quality? And that's a, in, in a very stressed system. That's a big ask. And inevitably, there's going to be human failures along the way. And we're going to have a
0: problem. What are you seeing in the maintenance side? In the general aviation community, I see a number of things. One, there's a lot of unairworthy airplanes out there. People are going, what are you talking about? when i see an accident that i get involved with and i start running through all the maintenance records i have found a number of the airplanes that i'm investigating right now should have never been in the air not necessarily because they had a mechanical issue except for some of the ones that i am working on yeah they had a mechanical issue the paperwork is bad the airplanes have never been returned to service properly they don't have the proper logbook sign-offs and oh by the way um, it is not tacit trust by the owner operator slash pilot on the mechanic to make sure that all the sign offs are correct, because 91405, 91407 <laughs> say that you as the owner operator slash pilot must ensure that the proper sign offs are in those logbooks. The mechanic, you know, yeah. signs them off as they should and returns the airplane to service. But if they sign off to work, but they don't return the airplane to service properly, that airplane is technically unairworthy, And that's on you, i.e., the pilot, owner, operator. I I, I like to to say that I wish that the first
1: moment of flight training that you walk someone out to the aircraft and they are going to become a pilot, that the instructor would say to them, I'm about to teach you what I can about the aircraft, but what you need to understand is that you, as the aircraft operator, or owner are responsible for the airworthiness of the aircraft period
0: that's what the fars tell you that you know you are you are responsible for the airplane the, the, the other the other issue is you know what the highest bust rate is right now for all certificates and ratings with dpes Logbook records they don't know how to read the logbook these <laughs> flight instructors are sending students up to go for check rides, whether you're a, a student going to a private or private to a commercial. I mean, I've got ATPs that are busting a check ride because they don't know how to read a logbook. They cannot demonstrate to the DPE through the logbook records that the airplane is airworthy before they walk out the door. They don't right. know that if that's a rented airplane, that needs a hundred hour inspection, not just an annual. Yeah, and You have to have ADs complied with. You have to have work orders if it's not logged in the... They don't understand any of that, why? Because everybody loves to wiggle the stick and go fly. But it's the ground instruction, it's the record keeping that it's basically blown off, don't worry about it, it's not that important. It is that important because you don't make it out the door unless you know that that log or that those records on that airplane um, are absolutely correct, because if you get ramp checked and the FAA goes through those records, you know who's getting the penalty. It isn't necessarily the mechanic, it will be the pilot.
1: And and I find that mind-boggling, even though I know you are a hundred percent right, and it is true because you've you've gone through, you've done it, you're a student, you've done all this work, or you're a pilot going for their, you know, another rating. You've gone and you've done all this work to get ready. And you've got this checklist to get in the door and get started with the examiner, right? And that checklist is do I have an appointment, Am I all set, and the aircraft's available? <laughs> do I have a check for him? because he's not going to do anything until like, I show him i got a check form. That's or, right. And in addition to that, that I have to show that this aircraft is airworthy or he won't get in it. How exactly. How can you fail those three things?
0: <laughs> but i am seeing it over and over and over again. And the, and the other concern is CFIs. As we started the show, I talk about the fact that we've got a lot of young CFIs teaching, of course, young students. The problem is, I'm working six accidents right now involving flight instructors who have either been seriously injured or killed. And it's like, how is this happening? The flight instructor is there to prevent that is they are to be there as the instructor, the coach, the mentor, but they are there also as the safety device for when a student does not doesn't do the maneuver properly and puts the airplane in a position in jeopardy. I mean, again, You gotta shadow the controls. You don't just coach a brand new student pilot who's never taken off on how to take off and say, when you run down the runway and you get to 70 knots, pull back on the yoke. They'll pull it right back into their chest and stand that airplane up on its tail. And oh, by the way, we just had an accident that killed three people doing that. So again, it is all about technique. It is all about understanding. And as a flight instructor, you have to give 100% attention to the job that you are responsible to do. You can't be thinking about, okay, there's another two hours in my logbook. I'm two hours closer Mm -hmm. to my airline job. If that's your mentality, then get out of aviation because you compromise my safety. You're gonna enter into airspace. You're gonna be doing things that are gonna compromise me. And I don't want that. And that's why as a flight instructor, this is your opportunity to really hone your captain skills so that when you do move on, to the next phase of your aviation career. You have that maturity. You have that experience. You have that demeanor. You have that, quote, professionalism. That is what is the airlines are looking for because yeah. they don't have time to coach you to do all of that.
1: You know, um, when, when I think back on my primary training, I, I had a, a absolutely fantastic, uh, a very, very experienced pilot, John McQuarrie, way back in the day that, that, uh, that taught me in his own aircraft. And he had this in, incredible innate sense of how to let me get far enough down a path that I could either discover the problem myself and correct it, or that he knew when he, or how he was gonna nudge me all within safety limits. Like, yeah. you know, flying at night aircraft wasn't coming up and he slowly looks over where reduction goes, he goes, you gonna raise the flaps, you know, <laughs> but he knew. Yeah we were safe at that point he knew he, i needed to see that the aircraft wouldn't come off the ground and so he was very very well polished in how to control that instead we are seeing very high profile things in youtube and the news and things like that of a very reckless behavior and and other issues from i'd say kind of an immaturity with flight instructors do you think that again just like we started with the commercial side do you think these are are just sensationalized blips, or do you think we really have a problem
0: right now in the flight training industry? Oh, we've got a, we've got a serious problem in the flight training industry. NAFI just held a, a flight instructor summit down in Lakeland this past year. It was the first time NAFI really took the bull by the horns, created this, and invited a lot of CFIs. What I was disappointed in was the demographic, because when you look at the age demographic, it was folks that were probably 40 and older, people mm. that were very experienced, that were there to contribute and to learn. But that's not the band, huh, the age demographic that should have been there. It should have been the new CFIs, the relatively inexperienced CFIs, those CFIs that have decided. I just flew with a kid uh, a couple of years ago. I was working an accident and I was in upstate New York. And I had to do some flying over the airport that this airplane crashed at. I had to get some aerial views and that kind of stuff. And the only operator on the airport was a young man who had a Cessna 150 and was providing flight instruction. So I asked him, I said, George, I need you to fly me around the pattern so I could take pictures. And then after we were done, I said, hey, can I, I never told them who I was or anything else or my qualifications. I said, hey, can I wiggle the stick a little bit? He goes, oh, yeah. So we, we fly around, and it was windy, and I greased this land. He looks at me, and he goes, what do you do? <laughs> and I finally <laughs> told him. But we got into this discussion, and I said, what's your aspiration? He goes, I love what I do here as a flight instructor. I don't want to go fly for the airlines. This young man's 24, 25 years old. He's got his own little business. He goes, I'm happy being a flight instructor, a professional flight instructor. And I found that refreshing because he was full immersion. It wasn't to move on and go do things and just accumulate time. You owe it to your student, but you owe it to yourself not to shortcut the system en route to your next level career, because you have to give that student 150%. If you're shortcutting them, then you're putting them in a position to fail. And Mm -hmm. when I investigate an accident, especially if it's a relatively newly minted pilot, I always go back after the flight instructor and I'll even go back after the DPE because it's obvious that there was a chain there. How did this young person get their pilot certificate, commercial instrument, multi-engine or whatever? How did they get through the system with 210 hours of total time themselves in a position of jeopardy that had to come from the flight instructor and that definitely had to come from a dpe and i can i can find the chain real easy um i'm real concerned about that accident that happened in kentucky or tennessee where that young man kept posting very derogatory stuff about his own student on social media belittling him and everything else they go blasting off and they end up in a level five and tear the airplane apart and, and get and both get killed. It's like, how did that young person get into the system with that kind of attitude? So it's, it's a black eye for all of us.
1: You you mentioned the demographic of uh, that you saw when when NAFI had their uh, big meeting and, and organizations like NAFI, of course, are doing wonderful work to do that and to try to help impl- help improve the flight instructor community. That said. Ultimately, if you want to get the attention, it seems, of flight instructors and the ones we're concerned about to kind of act differently or improve their professionalism and how they are and what their knowledge is and what they're doing, doesn't that have to come from kind of their goal? Wouldn't that be incumbent or extremely beneficial if it were coming from the airlines that are ultimately receiving maybe not the product they want at the end of this, to go down there and say, hey, you all should listen to us because you're going to be in an interview with us. So come to our stand down meeting. And this is what, these are the values we want to start seeing you demonstrate and tell us during an interview that you've been doing for a lot, for the X number of years as a flight
0: instructor, if you want to fly for us. I think that's a very good point, Jeff. There are all these quote, prep programs whether you watch it on the internet you pull up a youtube and somebody's going to tell you how to make it through the airline interview and and all that kind of stuff how it resonates what that person who is the recipient of that information processes it and incorporates it into their own you know professionalism or what they define as professionalism that word is thrown around very carelessly as well, because ah, I'm professional all the time. Well, what's your definition of professional? It's doing the right thing even when nobody's looking versus shortcutting the system to try and get ahead. Competition right. is stiff out there. Granted, understand it. Yeah. But if I've got two 500 hour pilots and I do an oral, and I have one that just rummages through some basic information but doesn't really understand what they're telling me. Or understand about the aircraft or the FARs or whatever, and the other one is spot on, but may not have the real technique in the air. I'll take the person who's got the higher level of knowledge and understanding. Why? Because you can teach them the technique. Right. And and having that basis. Look, I've studied the FARs because of my job. I've had to be able to interpret them. I've had to understand them. I've had to talk about them. I have to understand how to apply them, not just know them. And look, 91.3, everybody should know 91.3. If you don't know any FAR, you should know 91.3 because what is it? It's all about pilot and command. And I tried to relate this to a a group of young students. I said, the best way to understand the responsibilities of the pilot in command or the PIC, just think about Spider-Man. What's the famous saying for Spider-Man? With great power comes great responsibility. And if you read 91.3, that regulation gives the pilot in command great power and great responsibility. Period. Mm-hmm. That's it. And it's all on you. And whether you're the captain on a 767 or the captain of a, seven, <laughs> of a Cessna 172, it does not matter. The responsibility does not diminish because you're flying a smaller airplane. It's equal across the board
1: yeah that's a that's a very, very good point and and I do love that concept that that people who are on the path to the cockpit that in that final interview, a different conversation starts to happen that says someone flips through and goes oh i I see that you know you've been attending our training sessions regularly, you know for the past five years in in this, uh, I mean, yeah, get them going from the very beginning and still that help the
0: rest of us. <laughs> Well, Jeff, that philosophy applies to you. You're an A.M.P. and an I.A. That I.A. gives you that responsibility, that pilot-in-command responsibility, because you become basically the final authority when you're doing an inspection and you sign your name in that logbook mm-hmm. for the work that was done. I mean, again, you have the same responsibility, and and yeah. maintenance techs have to understand that that, you know, there is no higher level. Of, yeah, the pilot is responsible ultimately, but you have a responsibility before that aircraft gets pushed out of the hangar, that everything is done and done correctly. Yeah. So we've
1: talked about obviously flight instruction. We talked about commercial. Let's talk about GA safety um, uh, in that, because it, it's, it, again, there's a perception that it's been a very hard year and we've seen some very high profile losses to our community including a, a friend of yours and, and, and mine and Richard McSpadden, um, who is the pinnacle of of training in flight safety. And wh- what's going on? What are your thoughts?
0: That one was very difficult to, to really get my uh, arms around because I, I knew Richard very well and we had spent some time together at various um, organizations where we both were speaking. And given the fact that, I mean, you look at his storied background, the fact that he led the Thunderbirds, I mean, very structured, very disciplined, uh, very objective-driven type pilot who didn't take shortcuts, um, you know, and he's with another pilot who has advanced ratings, even though his background was football, he eventually, you know, focused his attention on, on aviation. The question is, you have two pilots in an airplane, in a small airplane. It's, it would be interesting to know what the decision-making that was taking place in there. What was the discussion? Who was actually the pilot in command? Who was coaching who? Who was acting as who? Who thought they could stretch the airplane, the glide, since they had an engine problem, all the way back to the runway versus making a left turn and landing in an open field? Why did they think they could make it back? And why would a very experienced pilot versus another very experienced pilot just go along with the program versus, let's err on the side of safety, let's be conservative? Mm-hmm. I would love to know the answer to all those questions. Unfortunately, we will never know that. Mm-hmm. But um, when you have somebody like uh, Richard, who is very high profile, very well regarded in our circle, and to have that happen to him, all of a sudden people are going, well, If it could happen to Richard, it could happen to me. And that's got to sink in and resonate because no one's immune from an accident. No one. I don't care if you're the Chuck Yeagers of the world or anybody else or the Richard McSpadden, it's obvious you're not immune. And while you try to mitigate as a pilot, mitigate the risk to as close to zero as possible, we always know that there is a risk, but it's all about preparation and being that four miles ahead of the airplane and not waiting till something happens to try and figure it out to troubleshoot and come up with a plan. You, you, and in this day and age right now, with all the tools, Jeff, when you and I started flying, I mean, we had the paper charts, you know? We didn't have the internet. I didn't have Google Earth. So when I took off out of Gaithersburg, which was my home airport and still is, years ago, it was just cornfields. Now there's houses and buildings and everything else. Now I look at my Google Earth picture of that airport. If I have an engine failure at 200 feet and I can't land on the runway, where am I putting that airplane down? These are the kinds of tools that pilots have available that they're not using. This is great stuff. This is great pre-planning. This is great pre-flight. Why? Because you don't know when you're going to need it. And you sure don't want to be hunting for it when you do. So
1: it. Are things, is it truly, uh, you know, a worse year of the uh, past 12 months, do you think? Or um, or do it just feel that way because of who it's been? And And if so, what's going on? What do we do about it?
0: Well, I think, again, aviation as a whole is under a microscope. I mean, I'm at an airport out here in Colorado where the airport's being sued by the neighbors because of noise and lead pollution. Okay. Well, we do a lot of flight training out here. These airplanes have been flying over this neighborhood now since 1960, but people are up in arms because of the increased amount of flight training that have taken place in the last two, two and a half years. Before COVID, there was no lawsuit. The neighbors, yeah, they complained about the noise. They knew an airport was here, but nothing was ever said or done. Now, because they got airplanes buzzing over their head almost 24 hours a day, it's become an annoyance. And um, and unfortunately, the community relationship with the airport um, has not developed as it should. And so uh, bad things are starting to happen, but that hasn't changed flight training. Um, yeah. You try to be a good neighbor. It's more spotlighted. People are taking more of an interest, not necessarily from safety per se, but from the fact of airplanes, especially little airplanes, they're an annoyance. <laughs> They operate in my airspace, they're making noise, you know, they're dropping lead out of the out of the exhaust pipe. All of those kinds of things have just been spotlighted. And so every time something happens in aviation, especially if there's a serious or fatal accident, it's going to make the news and it's going to draw the attention. And like you said, some of these accidents have had higher profile people, which now escalates that from this much of a story on page four of the newspaper to a TV show or you know, three stories or three shows that are covering this particular accident. But yeah. I really am concerned. I mean, we just had, a, uh, in my book, a high-profile accident in Massachusetts involving three pilots, a 13,000-hour flight instructor in a Baron with a very accomplished, quote, student, commercial-rated student, and then someone else who is a flight instructor getting an MEI. They got into a a flat spin and lost the airplane. How Mm. does that happen? How does that happen? And that's my concern. That's what draws my attention to it. It made the news and the local news, you know, for a day, and then it goes away because people don't understand it. But for all of us in this aviation community, it sticks around for a long time. It'll be interesting to see when they have them what the statistics actually are.
1: I know just a few days ago, you're speaking about my area. Just a few days ago, we had a Beach 99 uh, go down outside Manchester that that, um, came up. It looked like, I don't know, apparently lost a door, but things the flight track is is really hard to make sense of and and, and went down. So, again, I can't tell if that's paying more attention or (laughs) we're seeing more
0: of it. It's it, it, it's funny because every day, I, I just saw, because I get all of the daily, you know, issues that happen in aviation, not only here, but around the world. And for those that are interested, if you subscribe to Av Herald, you'll see a lot of things happening around the world with a lot of different airlines and different airplanes. Every time there is a cracked windshield, it is reported in the news on, a, <laughs> on an air carrier airplane. And if it's Boeing, it's in capital letters. (laughs) We've been cracking windshields for a very long time. It is just the nature of aviation. Yeah, we've had a bad windshield. Yeah, whatever. But now it's escalated that it makes the news. Yeah. Emergency landing, cracked windshield. Well, it wasn't, we know that it's not necessarily an emergency landing per se, but it makes the news and that's yeah. just because that spotlight has gotten so much bigger and every little thing now draws everyone's attention
1: makes a lot of sense i mean as i mentioned the uh, the story cnn called me on a few missing bolts on a fairing on an airbus uh, we've got the boeing lost nose wheel which you know could be related yep. to a pushback we don't know what that was yep. right it, it, these are not accidents that are occurring with the exception of that door plug and being yep. an incident Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's, it's definitely all over the place. You're in touch with a lot of uh, examiners. What are you seeing in terms of uh, failure rates or other things that are showing up that, that you're finding either, either with examiners or through your, your investigations?
0: Um, My friends that are DPEs and colleagues that I work with, because we have several of them that sit on the board of NAFI. um, It's obvious when you, when they start talking about Uh, their respective role as a DPE, they're very frustrated because they have students, students of all certificates and and rating levels coming in and sitting down and it becomes very obvious very quickly that they are not well prepared for the check ride. And that's not necessarily all on the student as it is the flight instructor who is signing them off to run them through the mill. They've paid their $35,000. They were told that they were going to get their private and their instrument or their private instrument and commercial, and they're trying to ram them through the system. The fortunate thing is, is that the DPEs are not buying into, well, there's a nice little paycheck for me. I'll just pass them and move them through the system because it is all about that quality. Because if that DPE passes someone, they go out and they are building time or they turn them into a CFI and they end up crashing. Like I said, it comes back on them because if they were able to see these deficiencies and and trap line them um, so that they do become the quality pilot that they should and they let them through the system, that is a a reflection on them. And unfortunately that's something they have to live with. But paperwork, flight instructors, not having the proper endorsements in these, in these pilot logbooks for them to even, because the DPE is going to go through your logbook and make sure that if you have a, if you're a student pilot with a 90 day sign off and you've gone through your 90 days and the flight instructor allowed you to solo beyond that 90 days, that's one, those are illegal entries, i.e. you can still accumulate and log that time. It can't be used against the total requirement time for a particular certificate a lot of pilots don't know that in the in flight instructors you know they get deficient they get sloppy they get lazy and and all of a sudden now you just paid a lot of money to a dpe and you never made it out the door yeah
1: well i mean ultimately we want to solve this and and we need to remove the stress from the system and if we're not going to ease the stress through the you know the enthusiasm of needing more planes and needing more pilots and needing more mechanics then we have to be able to satisfy that and remove the stress through the people that serve it and that ultimately are designees so tell me a little bit about what you think needs to happen in our designee system
0: well, unfortunately, um, we, we are short of designees. Um, they are overstressed. I mean, when, and if you talk to any pilot who's trying to get us, I just uh, talked to a young man who I've, I've been mentoring. He just now um, got his uh, commercial uh, multi-engine rating. He's been on the, on the books for that for three months. Wow. And it's because of DPE um, unavailability. Mm-hmm. And that frustrates a lot of pilots. And then they start shopping DPEs. Well, okay. And we all know that there are some DPEs with reputations that they'll just run you through the mill for that that check. If that's the way you see not only aviation, but you see yourself in a professional career, then you're not going to have a very successful professional career. Mm-hmm. When, I went to work for the NTSB at a very young age. I was in a very stoic agency with a lot of people that had more experience. They've forgotten more things than I'll ever know about aviation. I always found it a challenge to be that sponge, to be as best as I could be, working at 150%. I still do that today. 43 years later, I still work 12, 18-hour days to to learn and go out well outside my own comfort level to learn more stuff. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of attitude we need to have with all pilots not just knowing enough to pass a check ride to move to the next level. Because you don't know, as a student pilot, as a private pilot, I'll bet you there's ATPs that if you're flying a Cessna 172 and you get a little ice on that wing out there and you turn the airplane, you roll it into a bank, they don't know that that outboard wing is going to stall because they just changed the angle of attack of that portion of the wing because of the ice and the camber and they don't understand the aerodynamics. And that could be the difference between life and death. And I see that a lot when it comes to really yeah. dissecting accidents and incidents.
1: That that makes sense. I, I hope something is done, uh, which I think has to happen at a really at a governmental level about our designee system. And and, and to level set this for folks, it, it's easy to miss that, that that's how the FAA runs. That's how our entire system runs. If you're Boeing, your certification is happening through your ODA, the uh, the Office yeah. of Designee for, for uh, airworthiness inside there. If you're if you're going to get a check ride, it could be by an FA person, but I can't remember the last time that happened. <laughs> it's going to be a designated examiner. Exactly. You can't make more mechanics without designated mechanic examiners. You can't get your medical without a designated uh, airworthiness medical examiner, you know, aviation medical examiner. But we're all designees. That's yeah. out there, and uh, even if people are qualified
0: the FAA hasn't opened it up to have more. Correct. And and look, the people that I know that are in these positions as DPEs, they're solid. They they aren't there to try and snuff a pilot's career or or quell their enthusiasm to be a pilot, whether it's just a private pilot or go on to be an airline pilot. That's not their purpose. Their purpose is to ensure that you are the best quality pilot through that particular certificate and rating and they challenge you to ensure but they aren't making this stuff up there is this document called acs (laughs) the airman certification standards Um, some of them haven't been changed yet so they're still called practical test standards the fact is is that is the guidance document they aren't making things up just to make your life miserable they're pulling things out of those documents because the faa who they represent by the way a DPE acts on behalf of the administrator. That's why they can issue certificates and ratings. They're using that as their guidance document. And you have to understand that, that they're just not there to, to make your day miserable. <laughs> and you should be learning from what they're trying to imply or trying to teach you without teaching you because they can't, they're just evaluators. But there is, they are there to try and help you be A better you as far as being a pilot. And you should find that a challenge and you should accept it. I I always told my son when he was going through school and he was taking a test, I said, Don't worry about the test. Worry about what you know and just do the best you can. And if it comes to a question that you don't really understand, go with your gut because 90% of the time you're going to be correct. The bigger thing was, you take that test with confidence if you focus on the negative you're going to score lousy on the test if you are uh, confident in okay yeah i don't know everything but i know that when i do these things i'm confident i can do them correctly you're going to be a better pilot and get through a check ride a heck of a lot easier than if you quell in, or focus on the negative
1: that makes a lot of sense so so uh, as we wind up at the top of the hour what's your biggest wish or hope for for moving forward here in a positive manner for the remainder of 2024?
0: I want, I I know that there is a majority of the pilots out there who have aspirations of being in the front end of an airplane. But we also have people out there that are listening to your show and other shows that have aspirations of (laughs) piloting, um, you know, SpaceX or Mm -hmm. Virgin Galactic. So doing the space thing. The fact is, is that right now, you cannot be a 70% uh, 70 pilot. You put 70% effort into into your flying, you're gonna be a 70% pilot. That 30% is gonna hurt you or kill you that you don't know. It is all about doing well above 100% and challenging yourself every single day to be a better pilot, to learn more, to go outside your comfort zone. Not just know enough to get through the test or pass a check ride because that is not going to serve you well. You think that Sullenberger <laughs> figured it all out because he passed a check ride? No. They had to come up with, you know, okay, here's the performance. Here's what this airplane is doing. You take those two pilots, those you hu- those two humans, out of the airplane. What do you think AI or a computer would have tried to do with Miracle on the Hudson? It would have tried to turn that airplane back to a piece of pavement. It took human analysis of aircraft performance and decision-making to commit to putting the airplane down on the river. You look at United 232, you got four pilots who are trying to figure out how to fly a sick airplane with no hydraulics and get the airplane down in one piece. You're not going to find that on any knowledge test or practical test. It's all about understanding. And that's what Al Haynes did. He understood weight and balance and aerodynamics and knew they could use the, uh, the wing engines to turn the airplane, climb and descend without the number two. That's what aviation is all about. That's what being an aviator is all about, not just being a pilot.
1: That makes so much sense. Well, Greg, thank you so, so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. And I hope you'll come back because we could just go on and on and on, and there is so much value. And I absolutely love to
0: engage with you on this. Well, I thank you for, for putting this show together and having the guests that you have because you're always insightful with them. And they, of course, are always providing good information that your audience should really take to heart because there's always good good information. And it is our individual way of giving back to the industry. So thank you for always having me on the show.
1: <laughs> You'll be back. I am, I am so grateful for it. So thank you and have a wonderful evening.
0: Thanks. You too, Jeff.
1: And thank you for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live and for everything that you do for aviation at a grassroots level. We will be back. We're off next week, but we're back on February 13th, Tuesday, February 13th, with Kurt Robinson, CEO of Robinson Helicopter, with the amazing story of that family business that literally transformed the helicopter landscape so do not miss that show and then following that a very special show on tuesday february 20th the incredible kenny g musician and pilot of a de Havilland beaver he is uh, very very accomplished i spent some time with him also a couple weeks ago and uh, cannot wait to have him on the show i'm sure you're going to have a lot of fun with that too until next time i wish you all blue skies